Hello, and welcome to Captain's Corner. We'd like to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We have a great lineup of guests for you to enjoy this season. So we ask you to share this podcast on your social media with your friends and family. And of course, give us a like and leave a review. Hope you guys enjoy the season. This season is sponsored by Summit Marketing, Sure Construction, and WPO Development. Thank you for being such great supporters of Captain's Corner. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Janet Dean, Professor of Psychology at Asbury University. Welcome to Captain's Corner. Captain Andy Miller coming to you from Tampa, Florida, and I am delighted to have on the podcast with me today, Dr. Janet Dean, who serves as Associate Professor of Psychology at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, and she also serves as a is a district, now help me here, make sure I get this right, district licensed minister in the Church of the Nazarene. Is that right, Janet? That's right. Well, That's welcome right. to Captain's Corner. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be with you this morning. Well, w- w- for many reasons, I have l- looked forward to this conversation with you, Janet, and, but principally with your academic work. And um, I'm, I'm interested to see how this all has connected with your work. You also have a Master of Divinity degree, and you've served uh, the church in, in many ways in your local church. And um, But you've done a lot of work on human sexuality and w- w- groups, and you've done an amazing amount of work on a, an empirical study that's gone over 15 years, as opposed to an anecdotal sort of study that we all have going on in our own mind about how we interact with sexual minorities. And people might not know what I'm saying even when I say sexual minorities, but you're the one who's helped me actually grasp a hold of that term. What do we mean when, when you talk about, and a lot of your literature is focused on sexual minorities? Right. That was a, a term that we chose because we struggled with the, the language that's used. Typically, people will talk about the LGBTQ community or the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, we're we're primarily working with folks who experience same-sex attraction, but they're also people of faith. And because of that, not all of them will take on that gay identity label. And so to, to use the LGBTQ plus nomenclature right. doesn't fit for their experience. And so we struggled, what's a broader term that we could use that would um, gather everyone, you know, that we could, we could, and so we, we decided to use sexual minority that has been problematic though, because when we say it, people think that we mean something political. Oh, interesting. Right. And, and so it's been an, an interesting space to, to use, but we still haven't found another, another way to really, um, encompass and include everyone's different experiences. Well, even the use of the uh, LGBTQI+, even when people say that, and I hope I just didn't do what I'm going to say, that people almost can ruin their opportunity to have conversations by how they say those letters. Because let's just say you could, if you say it with enough comfort, well, then you, you kind of are an inside track. But a lot of times, by the time you get to the third or fourth letter, you're indicating in your tone, oh, LGB, oh, whatever, you know, like, and you kind of give it up. And like, as if it, in, in that, what I've learned from you and what I hope I can we have in this conversation is like how we get into better conversations and relationships with sexual minorities or, or humans in general, right? Um, humans in general. <laughs> yes. So, so like, uh, so this has, that term, would, 
would you still encourage people in ministry to use the, uh, the expression sexual minorities? Um, you know, I think it depends. It depends on who I'm talking to. Okay. So if I'm talking to somebody who very clearly identifies as gay and they see themselves in that community, when I talk to them, I'm going to use that language. Okay. But I also want to be aware that there are other folks who d- have not, they don't identify with that community. Right, right. And um, and in that case, I, I'm probably going to choose to use the term sexual minority more often than not, primarily because I'm working in places of faith. Okay. And I've, and I've so, jumped into this maybe too fast already. So I'm sorry. Could, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and like your own journey towards studying um, this, er- your study in this area? And then after that, I'll ask, I want to ask a specific question about your study with your collaborators. But tell us a little about you. Right. Yeah. I am, um, you know, I married, my husband's a retired Navy chaplain. Okay. And um, he's, so he's an ordained pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. We have two adult sons. One of them is currently in seminary studying theological studies, and um, the other one's a student at Asbury University. He's majoring business and um, biblical theological studies. Okay. So kind of runs in the family a little bit. Yeah. And um, yeah, so, you know, I'm from Ohio, um, went to seminary just soon, very, very soon after I accepted Christ. And thought I was going to be a counselor. And then, you know, God said, well, study theology too. So I did. But then I went back to psychology and, and got my doctorate in clinical psychology at the Ohio State University. The Ohio State. There. <laughs> the Ohio State University. And um, I really, through all of that, knew that God had called me somehow to do integration between psychology and theology. Okay. What that looked like, I didn't know. I thought it was going to be something around um, uh, sanctification, holiness, and wholeness. Okay. And But I didn't know what that was. I, I just kind of had that feeling. And um, I came back after, after, I always say after my time in prison, after I worked <laughs> in the prison for several years, I, I was hired back at, at the university to serve as a psychologist in the counseling center. I asked for university. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. I did that for four years. And um, it was there that, you know, I started to work with some students who experienced same-sex attraction and they were trying to figure out how that fit with their faith. Right. And it was a, about that time I, I had only been there a year or two that we brought Mark Yarhouse to campus. Right. You know, this is his thing. Right. And he had decided that he wanted to do a little research study on our campus at the time. And so Steve Stratton, who is my supervisor, invited me to join them. And we've been doing research together ever since. It's been like 16 years now wow. that we've, the three of us have been working together. And Mark and, Yarhouse is a extremely well-known name and, and, psychology and this is area um, teach at Wheaton co- College and as, as has had several other places too I just heard him cited as an authority outside of um, any Christian um, uh, like a, any, any Christian source it's not not just in the evangelical community and Steve Stratton who now teach at Asbury Theological Seminary so you were still at Asbury University while he was there too so before yeah okay so Mark came in as a, a chapel speaker and I I love research and, and so we connected in that way. And then just the three of us, we just connected around this topic of college age students really trying to figure out how to hold faith and sexual identity together. And, um, and so I, 
I want to say I fell into this area of study. I never like intended to study this. Okay. This isn't part of my personal experience. Right, right. I mean, it it just it was one of those I I think moments that God kind of orchestrates so <laughs> to kind of I I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But this is it's become um I I want to say one of my passions, how do we walk with people? How do we love people well? Yeah. And how do we help people figure out how to hold these things together in a way that is obedient to God? Amen. And even in 2005 or was that been about when this started? Your your study? Yeah, that's probably about when we start working together. Now, the study like we've done a similar study three or four times. Okay, okay over that time period. And so we haven't followed the same people, but we've done, we've asked some of the same questions over that time. So it is like a continual study. But then a couple of years ago, we finished a longitudinal study that ran over four years. Wow! And so we, um, we recruited students from 15 uh, Christian colleges that have pretty conservative statements around sexuality. Okay. We had a, a 160 students, um, participate in this. And then we followed them over four years. So we could kind of see the the changes that they experienced over that time. Wow. And, um, and so that was the book that we published in 2018. And, and so we still are doing some of that work. We're just launching a pilot study this spring for another project. We um, we're really hoping to look at um, some of the differences in the way that same-sex sexuality is experienced and thought about between sexual minority students and straight students okay. um, on these campuses. But we're also comparing Christian college campuses to secular state schools. Interesting. And we want to see what, you know, differences in climate and differences in experience, which no one has really done that before. Wow. So, I'm really interested in this. And it, it, what I was thinking, why I asked about being in 2005 when you started was that in 2005 our culture was in a very different place you know like hawaii may was maybe had started to have a same-sex marriage was and, right. and so this is like a, a a whole different place and i just wanted to affirm in you like it's just amazing how god's prepared you educationally theologically to be in this position for for you to be able to collect this data at this time i i think it's amazing how god has prepared you for this moment that we need you we we need we need you and your partner your um um collaborators to yeah. help us in this time when we first started this work andy when we first started this work like you know, we would go to schools and we would say, could we run this study? And they would look over our survey and they would say, yes, but you can't use this word. Oh, wow. Yeah. Use this language. You can't ask this question. And, um, and so now, you know, you fast forward people, the schools are more open around sexual identity, but our other project that we're doing is around gender identity, mm. which is, Probably, you know, it where we're at and our our ability to to talk about this in the the church community is probably where we were around sexual identity twenty or thirty years ago, and so that's it's been very difficult to do some of that work right now. Interesting that those questions are so important because, it, like, you would hold a conser- conservative position, like you're coming at this from an evangelical university, and um, at the same time. Like what I what I found helpful from your communication and your collaborators is like you're trying. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, 
trying to get to where people are. Like it, 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 it isn't about belief. Like, so if you're asking a question, if they use a term or even what we said about using, like you, you, you have to deal with people as they come to you, right? We meet people where they are. We meet people where they are. And I am going to use the language that they're comfortable with. I, I'm going to meet them in their space, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what, what's that term? I'm going to meet them in their phenomenological reality. Oh, wow. Well, tell, <laughs> tell us what the word phenomenological means. <laughs> phenomenological means that we all have our own sense of what's real. We all have this world that we live in where we have certain perceptions and, and certain understandings of reality. Right. In, in my job as a therapist, but I think also as a minister, is to step into that world with people right. and come alongside them. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we stay there. That doesn't mean that we never challenge anything. But to start the conversation, I have to hear that story right. before we can ever do anything else. Right. And it, 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 particularly if we have gospel focus ends, like we, if we see like our principal reason to, uh, for existence is to glorify God and to bring other people into a saving relationship with him. Like, how are we going to do that if we can't ever have a meaningful conversation? Right. Right. Now I would, I would say around this, um, is it David Benner? I think it's David Benner. He's a, a Christian psychologist. Uh, it might be Henry now. And I, I can't remember because both of them are, you know, spiritual fathers of mine okay. in writing. and um, But one of them says that we have to have a place of hospitality within ourselves. Mm. And so I have to be able to be, to know my own beliefs and, and be comfortable with myself and with emotion so that I can create this, this space in myself, right? So that when people tell me their story, I can sit with it without feeling like I have to say, but this is what I believe. This is where I'm at, right? Right, And so I can just hold the space for them. Um, and, and that doesn't mean I'm compromising on my values or right. my beliefs or anything, but I'm saying you're welcome here. Yeah. Wow. Come. Right. And, well, I need to, I need to be better at that for sure. Uh, I think it's like, as a preacher, it's just like, I, my, my work, I'm saying, I, I'm often talking to a congregation, but nobody's talking back to me except for a few amens here and there. So I need to be able to be in that position of, of holding that and just um, creating hospitality within ourselves. I love, I love that. And so I, I think if people are listening to this, go back, press the 30 second back button and listen to that again. So this study has been uh, in a long-term project. There's been a variety like, of iterations of it, and now you're taking it to another level. But this has led you um, to produce a book summarizing that data. Uh, before I go into, like, and you've written a new article that'll come out this summer that's addressing the Christian education world and how they might take some of your insights and use them. Before we go to that, what are what were some of the I know that this is why you write a book, but uh, what are some of the most insightful, the, the the most important observations you had from your own study? It's from the, the longitudinal study. The longitudinal, the big yeah, one. That's, that's right, yeah. So I would, um, some of those are going to overlap with like the major points that we built this article for Christian okay. education on. So, well, maybe so we'll just a, go to that. A, it will segue. Okay. It will segue into that. But, but a couple of things, you know, like things have changed since 2000, you know, in 2005, when we began this work to our, our more recent study, Christian college campuses have become um, 
kinder places towards sexual minorities. Okay. That doesn't mean that everything's good. That just means that that they've become better um, communities. And so we have we have seen that shift. We see more students um, taking on public sexual identity labels that are different than straight. Okay. So they're saying that they're gay or they're lesbian or they're bisexual. They're, you know, they're coming out like that. I'm saying that they're queer. They're going to own that language even on a Christian college campus. Um, so that, that's been a significant change. Um, some of the things that have remained constant, though, is that uh, uh, something that we would call intrinsic religiosity or the, the degree to which a person lives out their faith in their daily life, the degree to which they have uh, an experience of God in their daily life, that that, that faith peace is extremely important and it connects to all of this, everything else that we've studied. Wow. And so if we look at psychological well-being, if we look at, uh, you know, uh, beliefs about morality around sexual behavior, uh, whatever we look at, that intrinsic religiosity is related to that. Interesting. And the people who have, you know, more greatly owned their faith and live it out do better on every measure. Wow than students who don't. And that's just, and that's not saying they do better in um, becoming like uh, evangelical or like uh, they do better on psychological measures, right? Mm -hmm. They do better on like, not, not even if likely that leads to outcomes that are stronger altogether, but you're, you're just using like psychological measures in general. They do better. What are some of those measures? So we use two primary measures to get at that. One of them is a measure of well-being. So it talks about self-acceptance and purpose in life and and those kinds of things. And these students look very similar to the general population on those measures. The other one is a measure of psychological distress. So we're really looking for psychological problems, things that I would see in a clinic as a therapist. And on that measure, our sexual minority students um, by and large, look like the general college population. And so, you know, there's this, this myth out there that, wow, if you experience same-sex attraction, you don't want to go to a conservative Christian school. It's going to be horrible for you. We're not seeing that in terms of psychological health. Interesting. In fact, our students, our sexual minority students on Christian college campuses might even be doing a little bit better than wow. the general college population. Now, of course, you've got some, you know, some of them are really, really, really having a hard time, but the majority aren't. And then if you look at, if you look at that compared to uh, intrinsic religiosity, those with high levels of faith are doing significantly better wow. than the general college population. You know, in a general college population, I would see about, 50% of students having low psychological distress. If I look at sexual minorities with high levels of faith on a Christian college campus, 80% of them have low levels of psychological wow. distress. So much, much better than the general college population. So this intrinsic religiosity, I mean, I, I had never seen that term until I read it in your paper, but I think this is really helpful because if there is somebody who, like, let's say a, a parent who's working through a situation where their child has described this uh, same-sex attraction and they're, or they're, under, they're questioning their gender, the, the idea of keeping them 
in a, a Christian community, um, and would, is this like the idea of that is like would no matter what is going to produce a healthier outcome based upon your data? Is that what, is that a good conclusion, or am I saying something that right? Yeah, I probably want to <laughs> add a caveat. To okay. That. Okay. Good. I do think that continued spiritual growth is vital. Okay. It's vital. It's vital for, for mental health. It, it just is. However, some church communities okay. are so, I, I don't want to use, I want to say intolerant, but that's probably too strong of a word, are so uncomfortable talking about sexuality or even uh, allowing space to wrestle through sexual identity issues, right? right? Or to to kind of wrestle through what does this mean for me, that those places can be really hard for students. And and being in a really, uh, I would say, unsafe, and and, and unsafe sounds strong because I don't mean unsafe in that... um, people are being, you know, physically assaulted or anything. Right. We're just not seeing evidence of that in our research. Interesting. Unsafe meaning they might make a comment, you know, a negative comment about gay people is what I mean when I say that, you know, what we would call a microaggression okay. to some of these, you know, like being married is is better than than not being married. You know, that kind of language would be considered a microaggression. When students are in that, sometimes they um, will internalize a negative view of themselves and their sexuality okay. that does become destructive to mental health, gotcha. right? Okay. And so it's not that you need, I would say as a parent, it's not that you need to move your child to a gay affirming church. That's just okay. not what we're finding. We're finding that most of these sexual minorities of faith don't want, they don't want to go to a gay affirming church. Some do, but not all of them. But I want. I would want to have my child in a church. Personally, I would want to have my child in a church that holds a more traditional, conservative view of sexuality, and yet is comfortable enough engaging in that conversation to help my my child um, figure out how how do I be a person of faith if this is true about me that I have same-sex attraction. Yes. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, but what you propose is the idea of the church as a holding environment. Yes. And help us understand what you mean by that expression. Right. So, you know, we're really arguing that the church becomes an intentional community. and, And we talk about that as having three aspects that we want to be intentionally relational, intentionally secure, and then intentionally formational. And, and I, wanted, I, I want to think about how do we walk with people during this particular part of their journey? How do we create space to have these conversations? Okay. Uh, for students, you know, for people, students, older people, wherever they are in this, to kind of say, what does it mean for me to have same-sex attraction? What does it mean for me to be a person of faith? How do these things fit together? And and we need to understand that people are in this developmental journey and where they're at today is not going to be where they're at in a year. Right. And so they're not going to arrive at whatever we think the perfect solution is immediately. So how do I create a space where it's safe for them and we provide support for them to work 
on this journey, for them to be in process, if you will, yeah. for them to be figuring out who they are and how they're going to do this yes. and what God is saying to them. Um, without my jumping to this, you know, I can't just give them the answer. Um, when my husband was uh, in Iraq and he was doing a lot of counseling as a military chaplain, you know, mm-hmm. he's very military and he <laughs> always he wants to say, well, this is the solution. <laughs> this is what you need to do. Yeah. And I say, I know that you know what the person needs to do, but that's not our job. Our job is to walk with the person through the desert hmm. until they figure the way out. Right. It's not to say this is the way out. Right. And, this, and, that, and that's kind of what we want to do. That same yeah. perspective is like is education in general, but also like we, we serve in a similar way with um, – the, the residents of our emergency shelter. So we have uh, 125 people who are staying with us. Um, what If we were, and, and th- this is why we generally would not just go out and feed people on the street or give somebody a tent so they continue to stay on the street. It's um, what we want people to do is develop the skills and abilities and capacities God's given them so that they can thrive in life. So what we do is like we start with a desire that they have to get out of homelessness. So they come to our shelter. But ultimately, like if I just, and this is in part why there's a, a HUD for a long time was trying to push this uh, and still does to a certain degree, a rapid rehousing approach where you just take somebody who's homeless and you put them in a house and you give them resources that surround them. And those resources can be good. And a lot of times this is a successful way of doing that. But what needs to happen before that to work is there has to be the personal initiative to get out of homelessness. So what we started with when we reorganized our shelter was we, we had folks come in and we, we start with a question. Do you want to be housed? Do you want to? Do you want to? And if you have that, that's an asset within their own soul, I think, that God's put in there, that God that didn't create people to be homeless, right? So if that's the case, we need to do what we can to help them develop their own skills and abilities. And that might mean there's government resources that come into play. There there might be a rapid rehousing s- situation that comes, but it's going to fall apart if there's not the personal initiative to get to a different place. And I can't make somebody have that. And the same thing is true like in a discipling, I'm I'm sorry, but we have, and and nobody would treat um, a youth group just because maybe my son would say, he's 13 years old, if he says, well, Jesus and God, you know, Jesus can't be God um, because he's a man. Well, am I going to say, you're wrong. You're No, he's a 13-year-old who's on a discipling journey. And so is that appropriate then? To, to be able, like you're encouraging us to have a similar perspective towards sexual minorities. I, w- I want to think about this person is in process of creating a complex narrative of what it means to be gay, to have same-sex attraction, and to be a person of faith. Mm. And, and I know my own faith journey didn't happen overnight. Right, right. You know, I'm still in process to some degree. God is still, you know, I, I had a sanctification experience, but he's still sanctifying Amen. me. Amen. Sanctified, but still being sanctified, right? And and I think that this is this is true for everyone. But what that requires of me as I walk with people is that I don't jump to the end. Mm. I have to be okay with the process, just like God is okay with my process. You know, he's so patient and he's so kind and he walks with us. And that and that's what we we need to do. And some people are going to make choices that maybe don't fit with what, 
you know, we would think is the better choice for them. Um, but like God gives us free will, we have to give them free will right? to some degree. I don't get to make up people's minds for them. Right. Um, that, the other thing. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. So the other thing in this is just, we were talking earlier about this holding space and, you know, creating a space within ourselves. Um, you know, part of this is being intentionally formational. So we have to talk about faith, but we also have to talk about sexuality. The church will not talk about sexuality very much at all, mm-hmm. but um, especially on one-on-one discipleship sorts of things, I, we need to do that. But in order to do that, we need to balance a truth and grace, if you will. And I think, you know, the same scripture that caused me toward a conservative view of sexuality is the same scripture that tells me to love people passionately, right? And um, and so, how do I hold truth and grace together? And what I find in in this area in particular is that that that's really really hard, and that that creates a tension. In us, and it creates a lot of anxiety. And so we tend, because we can't tolerate the anxiety, we fall off one end or the other. Right. So you pe- you hear people saying, "But that's not okay. This is what Scripture says," and they're so caught up on the theological truths that they can't see the person in front of them, wow. or they lean to the side of grace, and they're so caught up in this person that they care about and they love that it's hard for them to hold on to this truth that might be difficult for this person. Mm. And so we tend to fall off of one side, one side or the other. But God, you know, his his holiness is so integrated with his love. Like holiness and love are the same thing in Amen. who he is. Amen. Like Wine Coops, a, a Nazarene yes. uh, theologian, she said that there are two sides of the same coin. Amen. You can't you can't pull them apart. And God does that perfectly, but we struggle to do that. Yes. But that's where I that's where I want us to be in our ministry. How do we hold these two things together perfectly? This episode of Captain's Corner is brought to you by WPO Development. I have a good friend, Keith Waters, who's the CEO of WPO Development, and he has a phrase he uses all the time that I have found to be very helpful. And it's this if you don't know where you are going, any path will take you there. Isn't that true? both in our personal lives and especially in our ministries. It is critical that we all have a clear plan and a path to where we want to go. Keith and his company, WPO, have worked with the Salvation Army and other ministries across the country and can help you develop a strong mission planning study all the way up to managing a capital campaign. I'm currently working with Keith and his team here in Tampa and would urge you to contact them if you have any planning or campaign needs at info at WPODevelopment.com or you can just Google them and find their website as well. God bless you. So, so I'm curious what the, you might see that looking like in a practical situation. Like, So our congregation, we have hmm. um, uh, a well, at non-COVID times, we would have had between 150 and 200 people uh, with us on a Sunday morning. Most Salvation Army congregations are a good amount smaller than that. Maybe you have a small youth group that would probably have less than 10 kids, um, 10 teenagers that are involved with it. But what, what and, and this isn't just a conversation about youth ministry, right? This, there are um, p- people who are sexual minorities who are, are some, some living celibate, some living in a situation where they're active in their same-sex attraction or g- gender dysphoria, whatever it is, there are 
within congregations. Like, so we have to, we have to deal with that. What, how, what are some steps that pastors can take and church or churches could take to create environments like you're describing? Right. So I really want to think, you know, again, we're, we're saying these intentional communities are relational, secure, and formational. And so I want to start with, are we being intentional about relationship? Are people reaching out to these folks? Are they welcoming them? Are they inviting them into their home, inviting them out to eat? Right. Right. Are we getting to hear one another's stories, you know, and just hear the story without interjecting anything, just hear the story. Are we seeing, are we seeing one another? People want to be seen, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so I would, I would say we need to start there. I see so often in churches where people are like, oh, I'm not going to talk to them. I don't know mm. what to say. This is kind of awkward. Right. And, and I'm like, this is your brother. This is your sister. Yeah. Say hi. Yeah. Just go say hi, right? And, and so can we be relational? Um, but we also need to be secure. And so I, I think pastors really need to work with their congregations on how we um, we watch our language. Okay. Right? And how do we become a community of grace in such that we don't say things that are harmful or disrespectful to other people, that we honor people's experiences, even if we disagree with them, right? Yes, yes. So there are a lot of little comments that are made that you're like, probably not appropriate. Well, um, what are some of those? I mean, I, is it appropriate to ask that question? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just at, like... I'm thinking mostly social times, jokes about people being too effeminate or people being gay or, you know, um, you, you know, that kind of language gotcha. that kind of happens. Um, I just, I think that's inappropriate. We need to, to be careful. Um, and then around our theology, like, I, I do think it's okay to stay our theology out loud. Okay. You know, we need to talk about sexuality in the church. But we also need to understand that people hear that differently. And some people will perceive that as a microaggression. Okay. So how do I talk about it in a way that isn't saying, so therefore you are bad and God has nothing to do with you? Right, right. Right. So how do we how do we communicate that God sees you and he loves you? Um and because he loves you, these are the boundaries he's put around sexuality. Right. Right. How do we how do we talk about um, all of us struggling right. in some areas of our lives? I would argue that everybody has some sexual struggle at right. some point in their life. But um, you know, how do we talk about this like people who are gay and who are engaging in that behavior? They're not a worse sinner than I right, am. Right, right. This isn't some kind of worse sin than the, the things that I'm doing. So how do we kind of equal or equalize the playing field, if you will? Yes, yes. Um, pastors, I think from the pulpit, we need to to, you know, sometimes when we talk about men and women, or when we talk about um, married people and single people, or you know, we need to say. God sees you, whether you're straight or gay, God sees you. Right. We need to to have that acknowledgement from the pulpit that we see that you were here in our presence. Right. And I know that some people in the congregation will see that as being too affirming. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that it is. I'm not saying, so therefore go out and live your sexuality however you want. I'm just saying, I recognize that this is part of your experience. Right. And you're welcome here. And God loves you. 
I've, I've used the language same-sex attraction more, but it, does that not go far enough to connect with people with where, where they are, like where they're coming from? Like I've tried to try, tried to say, like if you experience it from the, from the pulpit, like I, I've, I've tried to be, and hopefully the people who are listening to this podcast who hear me preach regularly will hear that, that I try to come in a loving, I'm a, I try to say I'm a, I take Ben Witherington's line, I'm an equal opportunity critiquer of all sin. Like I, like I, I, I know I struggle, I, I try to say those type of things, but I've, I've, instead of saying like, because it's, you know, so if you're gay, you feel this, but I've, I've said broadly, if you experience same-sex attraction, but I wonder if that's showing too many cards and maybe doesn't open up uh, enough of a relationship. So I'm going to, I would probably, I tend to vary it in classes okay. and, and when I do presentations and that sort of thing. Uh, I like the, if you experience same-sex attraction language better, but okay. for some people, that is connected to the old Exodus movement, you know, pray the gay away, that kind of thing. Right, right. And it it feels it feels bad right, to some right. people. And so that's why I'm going to vary up my language some. I would be interested. You mentioned like trying to see people and have conversations and invite people into your home. What what is a, a good question we could ask that would help us? Uh, hear people's story well. When let's say we get that chance where we're having coffee with somebody, um, what's a good question to ask? Yeah, I you know it can be as simple as tell me your story. Mm. You know, if they typically you're going to be in that situation where they're telling you, "Hey, I'm gay," or "Hey, I experience same sex attraction," and you know we're not just going to ask. <laughs> there, there's going to be something that they tell us that, right. that's going to. And at that point, I, I'm probably going to say, thank you for sharing that with me. Tell me tell me a little bit what that's been like for you. Tell me about your journey. Tell me about your journey. Gotcha. And, um, you know, I am going to hear about relationships that they have, even if they're in a current relationship. Tell me about your partner. This person's important to them. Mm-hmm. And so for me to just ignore it is saying, I don't, I don't want to see that part of your life. Right. And, um, and so I just, just like I would anybody tell me, tell me about your story. Tell me how you got to here, Yeah, how we ended up here. What's, what's happened until we've ended up here. Um, I just want to listen. I want to ask questions. I want to be curious. Um, I understand very much that the desire for even a same sex relationship comes out of that same desire that all of us have for intimacy. Yes. Right. God wired us for relationship. He wired us for intimacy. And so I understand that that desire is the same thing that I experienced that, you know, drew me to my husband. Mm. And in that, that desire is beautiful. But all of us, right? We've all been tainted, I don't know, Yeah. whatever the word is by original sin, and our desires get shifted, they get distorted. And so you've got this beautiful desire that this person, or that God has put in this person that's been distorted by original sin. Right. I want to appreciate it for what it is, but also understand the form that it's currently in. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love that transition to, to be able to see how there there is something good at the base of it, which is trying to seek out relationships. And even um, we had on uh, had on the podcast last year, Christopher West. Um, I'm not sure he, yeah. he's written uh, Our Bodies Tell God's yeah. Story. And he's uh, um, that e- even the very essence of how we're created 
is, is a part of like the natural theology that leads us towards other people. Well, like that's that's still part of like that that desire for intimacy has been as he described it as um it's like God has given us um, rocket fuel and it's to shoot us to the stars but unfortunately like it happens it gets turned around and it shoots us into the ground and it hurts us but there still is that rocket fuel it might be uh, misdirected and if I ever say anything wrong Janet you know like I, you, when I can use better words you just slap me or you stop me so, so like at the same time like I, I feel I haven't thought about that of lo- looking at even the desire to be in a relationship as originally connected to that um, to what God's put in us. Uh, it's yeah. beautiful. But it is. It's key to how we are made. We have a desire for a relationship with Him, even if we don't acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Right? We have this desire for a relationship with God, and we have this desire for a relationship with one another. And I, you know, I don't, I don't have research to support this necessarily, but when it not, probably not at all. But one of my concerns about where we are as a society is that we have become hypersexualized, mm-hmm. and we don't understand true intimacy within a friendship, mm. right? Wow. I, I think that that's something that we have lost as a society. And so where we used to, I think there was a place to have these very deep, intimate friendships with with people of the same sex we have now sexualized that and we've, I think we say, well, therefore you must be physically attracted to them. And, and our bodies, you know, we're biopsychosocial beings and it, we can very easily move ourselves one way or another. And there is research from Lisa Diamond. She's, uh, I, th- I, I think she identifies as a lesbian. She's a sociologist, but she talks about our attractions being flexible, like they move, Mm, mm -hmm. they move based on who, you know, we feel this intimacy with, particularly in women more so than men. But I, and so I'm a little bit concerned because we've lost what it, what true intimate friendships are that we've sexualized those. And we're now misunderstanding some of the things that, that we experience. That's not to say that people don't experience true, genuine same-sex attraction. Some do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I just think that there's this fuzzy place in there well particularly in a culture where like when i was growing up this wouldn't have been something like if there was somebody who um used like had uh, had characteristics physical characteristics that might um be more effeminate it and at the same time that 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 person when i was growing up might not have assumed that that might lead them towards the same sex relationship but and now in our culture now like it just seems like whenever there is anything like that, it's like, oh, that must be, that must be what you are. Or if there is, that they, they might even be called like as, well, you must be trans. And whoa, let's, let's slow down a little bit here, right? But like yeah. we have we have these things going on at the same time. It's interesting, like you talk about this in your, your paper and the work of your collaborators has talked about this before too. Something that's called the, the spiritual friendship I don't know if it's movement, but like school or thoughts of trying to ensure that people who might who experience same sex attraction do um, and want to live a celibate lifestyle need to have avenues for connecting, having intimacy that isn't that is within the bounds of God's word. Um, so, like. Talk talk about that a little bit. And I know you and I, I, I'd love to get to and like some of the things that come with that movement that we might not at the same time affirm. So um, 
I would love to love to hear you talk about the spiritual friendship movement. So with I I am a huge proponent of the spiritual friendship movement. Uh, Steve Stratton and I have been talking about um, wanting to do work with the church to teach the church how to do friendship. Okay. Right? And, and so, so, but I'm going to back up maybe a little bit. Okay. You asked earlier, what can pastors do okay. to make their church communities more friendly, more, more, um, providing the holding open, whatever yeah. the word yeah. is. Right. Provide that holding environment. I think one of the things that we need to do as a church is we need, we need to provide examples of how to live a life as someone with same-sex attraction who is obedient to this, the way that we understand scripture and, and scripture's teachings around sexuality. We don't have those people, hmm. right? And so churches, you know, our more conservative evangelical churches are going to be really hesitant to hire a pastor who is gay, but yeah. celibate right, right, just right. because they're gay. But wow, what a role model that right. person can be to other folks in the, the congregation. Uh, and so where are our role models? So that would be one, but also where the, you know, we, in the evangelical church, we tend to, whether we mean it or not, we imply that the only way to be fully human and fully satisfied in life is to be in a marriage relationship. Right, right, right. And that, that's just ridiculous. Right. It's just ridiculous. So how do we talk about what it means to be single? Right. What celibacy is like? Uh, how do we how do we really encourage walking with God in, in those different pathways other than marriage? I don't want to put marriage down. Marriage is a beautiful thing, right. but it, it's not not everyone is going to be married. Right. And, 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 and I don't care if you're straight or gay, not everyone is going to be married. Right. So how do we have space for that? And how do we offer then alternatives for intimacy? Because we have intimacy needs that have to be met. Right. And so the primary, you know, some, I know Mark Yarhouse and some of his other collaborators have been doing some work around mixed orientation marriages where one partner is gay and the other partner is straight and they go into this relationship knowingly. And what they have found is that the, the gay partner will very often develop sexual attraction toward their spouse, even though they don't have attraction even to anybody else of that gender. Amazing. And that those marriages can be as healthy and happy and fulfilling as a heterosexual marriage. Beautiful. And so that would might be one option for people, right? Another option that we're seeing that really, I think, um, kind of came to the forefront through Wesley Hill out of his book, Spiritual Friendship, is this idea of committed covenantal friendships that don't have sexuality as a part of them, mm-hmm. but it is, we're going to live life together. We're going to make major life decisions together. You know, if one of us moves, the other one's going to move, mm. you know, we're going to do this thing so that we're not a lone ranger out there. Um, and so I've seen that. I've also seen churches do, um, you know, evangelical churches do, uh, celibacy covenant services with people where the church binds themselves to the individual wow. and the church says, we will be your family. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Have you been there when that's happened? I, I haven't been. Boy, to, I'd love to be I've in the had, room. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think, wow, for a church to take that on and to say, we're going to be here. We're gonna, When you're sick, we're going to bring you food. Right. And you know, when you travel and you come home from the airport, you're going to call one of us and say, hey, I'm home. Right. 
and we're going to care, you know? Yes. I love that. We're going to celebrate the holidays with us and we're going to hug you and give you that physical contact. You are our family. Wow. And even like have your kids be like adopted aunts and uncles to them and like those type of things that have can happen in the life of a congregation. Mm-hmm. I love that. That what it, it's hard to know where to get started in making that happen. I guess uh, it, would it be as simple as saying like if you experience these type of feelings and you're feeling lonely like this, we'd love to talk with you about that and make sure that our church is being a home for you. Would that critique me? Is that a good thing to say from the pulpit? I, well, you know, I think it depends on your congregation. Right, always. right. <laughs> you know, these people are going to hear that. And um, yeah, I, I think I think we have to be intentional about reaching out. Okay. There's, there's, you know, a lot of people who experience same-sex attraction carry hurt from the church. Um, and from the theological teachings, from experiences that they've had. And they are hesitant. Mm-hmm. And so, in that, you know, even when we approach that, when they're at church, there's a little bit of anxiety. So, how do I meet them and help reduce that anxiety in them? How do I say, I want to get to know you? Right, right. I want to get to know you. Um, and with that, I, I also need to understand that that person is more than their sexuality, so, because that's the other mistake that the church sometimes makes. They're like, oh, this is our member who's same-sex attracted. No, this is just our member. This is a real person who has a life and they have a job. Right. And sexuality is part of their experience, but it doesn't define them. Right. And I, I think that's one of my major critiques of the LGBTQ movement is that they allow sexuality to define them. Wow. And that's one of the challenges that I had when I first started reading about the spiritual friendship movement in Wesley Hill and and others. I my challenge was not that I love the, the picture that what you just talked about for the last five, ten minutes. At the same time, there's this like I don't they might and I imagine they have a really good response to this, but that that they encourage people to say that they're gay Christians. And that they're so for me, I just always struggle with the idea of putting anything. Like, I don't want to be a salvationist Christian. Uh, I don't want to, or an Asbury Christian, um, to put any modifier in front of the word Christian to see our identity, like to say our whole world is seen through the lens of our sexuality. I've struggled with that and I have a hard time talking about it, honestly. So I'd love for you to help me think through it. Right. This is this has actually become a really contentious issue in the church right okay, now. Right, I am in the I've I've been witnessing some arguments around this, and I, I think that that this is the way that I understand it. And I know that people are going to be upset if they hear me say this. I agree with you. I don't think that we modify being a Christian with anything. I just I don't. I am not comfortable with the the language of gay Christian or conservative Christian or evangelical Christian or a female Christian, or I'm just not, I'm not. Um, But I would also argue that I've not always been there. Mm. And this is, this has been a journey for me and my life to, you know, because identity is we're growing up. Identity comes from who we know. It comes from what we do. It comes from who we are, you know, like the physical characteristics, being female, whatever. And I think we all take on these kind of 
worldly sources or even physical sources of identity. And part of growing in the sanctification process is this dying to the self. Amen. And I think that God has in my own life kind of taken these things away from me over the years. Hmm. And I don't know if 10 years ago, I could have as truly said, I am a Christian hmm. without a modifier as I can today. Hmm. And so I, I, I know that there has to be room for people to move through that journey. Right. And I understand that for some people, for part of that journey, they may take on that label. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I challenge the taking on that label and they get really, really emotional, that tells me that some identity is still wrapped up in that. Right, right. But man, who am I to, to condemn them for that when... My identity has been in being a mom right. or being a wife or being a psychologist, right? Yeah. And God has had to take those things away from me. He's mm-hmm. had to say those things don't matter right. as much, right? What matters is that you are, are my child. That's what Amen. matters, nothing Amen. else. And, you know, and it's not that God doesn't, I want to say, honor those things. I mean, He created me as a female. He created me, you know, He, He, He's blessed me with a husband. Those things matter, but those are the things that matter right now in this world. When eternally, how I am right now in this world is not who I'm going to be eternally. Amen. Right, and and that understanding for me comes from my friend Christopher Yuan, where he says, you know, my sexuality is how I am in the world, but it's not who I am. Wow. Right? Say, say that again. I, that's awesome. Say that again. <laughs> my sexuality is how I am in the world, but it's not who I am. Wow. Right? That you could put in, like you just said, you could put um, motherhood there, and I could put fatherhood. Like fatherhood is how I am in the world. Like I'm always, I'm always going to be Andy, Titus, and Georgia's dad, um, but it's not who who I am. Like I'm a you're, and first, I'm a child of God. Right. First, I'm a child of God, and that's really, and, and I know, ultimately, that's the only thing that matters. Wow, yeah. Right? Because all of this is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And and so, that's where I want people to get, but I, I need to remember that I'm still in process of that. Like, I am, I'm not even fully there. Mm. And, and so, there, I think there has to be some room for that kind of growth, development, you know, spiritual maturing over time. Um, but I also understand, so I say that, I also understand that sometimes people take on that identity label, not because of where they are in their own journey, but because they're doing it as a mission, right? Like if they if they identify as gay Christian, then that says to other people, hey, you know, you can, God loves you, even if you are gay, I'm one of them, right? Like, I'm safe, come talk to me. Right, sure. And so sure. I think that there's a missional aspect to that language too, that we need to keep in mind. Um, and there's something that that says, "Hey, this has been part of my experience," and and so and I don't know that this person in front of me, I don't know what they mean by that term. Right, right. And the only way I'm going to know what they mean by that label is to talk to them and hear their story. Right. right? Defining those terms are so important. Right, right. What I do know is that you know, 20 years ago, if you said you were a gay Christian, that meant that you were a person of faith, and yet you were in a gay relationship involved in same-sex sexual behavior. In today's world, that does not mean that. Right. And same thing is true like with a uh, a 13-year-old who comes into our youth group 
and says, I'm gay. Okay, well, tell me, tell me what that means. Like, like you said, 20 years ago, you could have, like, what, what would that mean that they're, they're living that out? No, that's, that's something that it could just mean that they've experienced for five seconds a feeling and, or they've been, had a situation that's led them to a place where they just wonder, maybe they had a breakup with a boyfriend or girlfriend and they're, uh, who knows, all a hundred different things that could be a part of that. But we, the, the terms are very different. And so for us to be entrenched in our terms, even if we are, we are entrenched in our convictions, um, at the same time, like to be entrenched in our, our, our terms and our approach is what, what needs to change um, as we all are working through this journey. Yeah. We, my husband um, was a scout master. And so we've heard all, you know, all the things. And so we've lived through the Boy Scouts becoming open to, um, you know, gay boys and, and leaders. And, um, and so I've heard stories and I, I heard this story about this, this one church that when that happened, they kicked the scout troop out of the church and they said, we're, we're not going to have gay boys in our, our group. Mm. Um, and they're, you know, they're not going to be part of this church community. And my husband and I were thinking, we're better for them to be right. Interesting. than in a church group. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, middle school and high school boys, and none of them should be sexually active. Right. So why does it matter if they're same sex attracted or not? Right. Right. And, and so it was just kind of, it was, I just thought, wow, God loves every one of us. And I want everyone, everyone to be in a position where they can hear the good news. Mm-hmm. Why would I ever tell somebody you can't be in this church building because of the attractions that you feel. Wow. Who am I to tell somebody that you're not good enough to come into the presence of God wow. when Jesus died for them? That's right. You know, I just, so things like that break my heart. Yeah. It breaks oh. my heart. And I know, and you've seen it in the, you know, counseling people where you've probably had to deal with the fact that people are, not, don't want to ever walk back into a church because they heard something like that. Um, I mean, you've, I assume you've counseled with hundreds of people on this, these issues. (laughs) A few. Yeah. Wow. And I've, and I've seen people, you know, they wrestle with this in different ways. And I, and I, I have dear friends who see this very differently Mm -hmm. than I do. Right. And um, one of my dear friends, and she is, she's given me permission to talk about this. She's an Episcopalian priest and she's a lesbian and um, and I love her. She is dear to me. Mm-hmm. And I believe with my full heart that she is pursuing God. I disagree with her life, with her life and with her marriage, but I love her partner too. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's just that, so I wrestle a little bit. She's chosen something that I don't see as obedient to God. And I don't, I don't know that I ever will with the amount of study that I've done on this issue. It I can't see how people can get to the point that this is okay. And and yet I have this friend who is very much a person of faith who's living this, you know, she sees this very differently. I don't know what God's going to do with that. I don't right. know what he's going to do with that. I, I, I don't know. Um, but you blocking yourself off from her and saying, well, we're done. That's certainly not what he wants yeah. you to do. <laughs> Let me ask you one other question. I I just could. Oh, sorry. I interrupted you. Um, Did I interrupt you there? 
No, I don't know what I was going to say. I think we froze. We're on Zoom here a little bit for a second. Um, I wanted to, and I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, so we might just have to edit it all out. Uh, I, the Salvation Army globally, um, we have, uh, there's been a couple of territories within the Salvation Army and other parts of the world outside of North America that um, have come out with statements um, against conversion therapy. And it attacks it pretty strongly. We haven't said that. We haven't had that happen in the United States. And I think, like, internationally, the Salvation Army is waiting for our international headquarters and our international leader, the general, um, to kind of lead the way on this and probably to make sure that we have a unified voice as a denomination. Of course, we're unique in that we're, as a denomination, in 131 countries under the same leadership. Uh, we're not like instituted in a different way. We all fall under that leadership. So when one person says one thing, it affects the other. Um, so it's a, we're in a, a tense time. So I'd, And I know there's laws in certain states about conversion therapy. Could, could you, I know it needs another hour, but could you just w w help me think about conversion therapy and the, even the challenges that are coming to it at this time? We're, we're actually facing that in our state right now. So I've been thinking a lot about okay. it. My colleague, Mark Yarhouse, actually did a study uh, early in his career. Um, it, uh, he has a book called X Gaze where he looks at this And, um, you know, conversion therapy was such where some of the techniques that were being used actually ended up being a little bit, a little bit, sometimes very harmful to people. Okay. And it was this idea that we are going to change people's attractions. Well, we know that we don't change, people's attractions don't change very much. I don't know why they don't. Um, I don't know why God chooses not to heal some people. And then yet some people he does. Right. I, I don't get it. Um, but it's it's not for me to get right, like right, right. <laughs> um, and so conversion therapy, I there's evidence that some people were actually helped, but the majority the of the evidence suggests that people weren't helped and that they they were actually harmed. And so when I look at that evidence as a therapist, I'm saying, okay, this is probably not the therapy that I want to use. Right. It's it's definitely not the therapy I want to use. The the chance of harm is so great. Okay. That I, I'm just not going to do that. And I think, though, I would argue that that's a therapeutic decision. And with states or churches coming out and saying, you know, we're going to ban conversion therapy, we don't see churches or states banning any other type of therapy. <laughs> yeah, right? sure. They allow the professionals to make those decisions. Right. And, you know, psychology and counseling, the mental health professions, We are self-governing and we have ethical standards where it is unethical and it is unlawful to conduct therapy that, you know, the research suggests is harmful. Right. So we shouldn't be doing that anyway. So why would there need to be another law? Okay. So, so I have that concern. I don't think legislatures or <laughs> church authorities have the right to tell mental health clinicians what they can and they can't do. Right. So I've got that issue with it. But the other issue I have in looking at the way that this proposal here in our state is written, uh, it's suggesting there's a line in it that says that parents um, cannot force their children to um, live, to um, express themselves in a way that's, that's different than the child's sexual attractions or their sense of identity. 
and it, it can't be done by faith or that sort of thing that parents have to give their children freedom and that the count, the therapist can't help the parent get the child to fall in line with what the parent wants. Right. 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 I, I would have to get the exact language to tell you. Now, my concern with that is that the way that it's written is it, it can be used the way that it's written. If it's, if it's interpreted as such, can say that a therapist can never talk to a person about how their faith impacts their sexual or gender identity. Wow. And that is really, really scary to me because neither I nor the government has any right telling people how they're going to value their faith and sexual identity. They get to choose. Yeah. Right? They get to choose. And if they choose to, you know, submit their sexual identity to their faith, then that's their choice. Right, right. You can't govern somebody's mind. (laughs) Right, right. And I want to be in a place where I can walk with somebody as they're making that decision. And the way that the law is written, if it's interpreted in a particular, more liberally, it could prevent us from ever having those conversations. And I would argue that probably the majority, a large portion of the mental health community really does believe that if you are a sexual minority, if you have same-sex attraction and your faith is difficult for you um, because of that, because it has more traditional teachings, then you should just walk away from your faith. Mm. I have heard that. I have had other therapists say that to me wow. about clients. Well, if their faith is causing them a problem, they just need to drop it. Wow. Who are we to tell people which one they should drop? Right. And that that's just a scary thing for me. Wow. So it, it's it's interesting to hear like when sometimes people are jumping and they make assumptions about disciplines. That's just this is really an internal discussion amongst psychologists. This isn't this isn't this thing for legislators or denominational officials to Really, I mean, I think what a denomination could say, like what the Salvation Army might say, is, you know, based upon our view of Scripture and our understanding of the value of every person, we believe that sexual minorities, should that we should do no harm in these situations. And we just want to encourage our friends in the psychological community to ensure that your therapies are such that no harm is done based upon the best research or something like that. Be care- but be- oh, here's good. the thing, you have to be careful. You have to be careful with that phrase, do no harm, because some people would argue that wow. if we espouse traditional values around sexuality that limit people that limit people's sexual expression, we are causing harm. Right. It's so hard. Yeah. It's, it's an incredibly hard place for us to be in that you're, and this is where, like, as our society, we're moving in a direction uh, where it's very hard for us to think through this because, like, we're not allowed to think certain things. Like, like if, if it is a thought crime, you know, or if it is, like, we are, we have hate speech because we have, have we affirm what 2,000 years of church tradition has affirmed, the marriage exists, marriage is an institution for one man and one woman for life, that we're harming somebody. Yeah, thank you for correcting me on that. Like, I, I, I'm really glad to get, to get that right because I want to, like, make sure that, like, we, we don't, what, what like, would, would the right thing to be, be to say, like, we don't want a, a, a therapy to hurt somebody? I, I mean, what could we say? And like, what's a, what's the thing a denomination could say to um, encourage a psychologist in the denomination to not 
use Ethereum. I mean, we should just get out of that. We shouldn't say anything, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I don't know that you need to say, I, I don't understand why it feels political right. to have to say anything because mental health professionals govern themselves. And if I use a therapy that is not empirically supported, I am acting unethically and unlawfully and a lawsuit could be brought against me. Right, right. So why, I mean. You don't need the Church of Nazarene to tell you that. Exactly, exactly. My ethical code tells me that. I mean, I guess the Church of the Nazarene or the Salvation Army could say, hey, follow your ethics code. Right, right. Duh, we should be following our ethics code anyway. And I think I think that's my difficulty. I don't I don't want these other organizations to get in the place that they're telling psychologists or medical doctors what they can and they can't do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's now, a real challenge. So like I think what, what the Salvation Army is probably experiencing is it's probably that grace and truth type of balance that we have is like we have such a desire in these territories, or, or maybe maybe it's more subversive than that. But I mean, looking at it from the best view, I would think they're just wanting to show that they're supportive and that we love everybody. Like, and we, we want to affirm that truth. But it might be really tipping the other side because it's really a political posture. And rather not, we understand it to be that. Um, rather not, they understand that that's what they're doing or not. That's the case. My, my fear is that, like looking at it from the negative side, is that, no, they want there to be more openness in the sense like to completely affirm of g- gay marriage as an institution that's not pre, you know, uh, like I, I think of marriage as a pre-political institution, but so if we think of this like in a sense of like, no, we, we this is a way we want to push society, even the Salvation Army. Well, that's where I have a problem is it seems like there is a possibility that they are posturing for that type of change. And that's where, that's where my challenge is. So I, I haven't asked them. So I'm not in one of those territories, but it is something that we're experiencing. <laughs> I, I feel like there's a lot of organizations right now and the church is one of those where we feel like we have to virtue signal. Yes. We, we feel like there's some pressure. We have to get out there to say, this is where we're at. And I and I hear that if we don't, other people create a narrative about who we are and where we are. But I, I wonder how then do we create, without giving into that kind of political pressure, how do we create a, a richer narrative? Yeah. You know, instead of saying, don't do conversion therapy, why not come out and say, this is what a holistic, healthy view of sexuality and community looks yes, like. Yes, amen. Right? And, and for whatever reason, we just, we, we want to be so quick to jump on whatever political bandwagon is there. We are the church. Amen. We have a truth that's greater than any of these political issues. Why aren't we staying in our lane and preaching the gospel? I, I, I don't understand it. Yeah, I, you know, I I don't understand it. Um, we we have something that is so much richer than anything this world could offer. Amen. So, and we don't go there. Yeah, yeah. Jan, I love this close out here. Thank you so much for your time. Like, let's just imagine, like, um, there's somebody probably maybe listening to this podcast. Um, maybe they're 20 year old and. Uh, they're experiencing same-sex attraction. They don't know what to do with it. They're, they're, they're part of the Salvation Army, and they go to evangelical college. I don't know. I'm not feeling like the Spirit leading me to say the exact same thing. But what what would you say to them? And I know that you'd say, give me a call. I'd like to talk to you for two hours. But what would you say to them right now? I would say, God sees you, mm-hmm. and He loves you. Mm-hmm. 
Amen. And he wants you to come to him, right? With everything, just come, just come, just come. Amen. That's, that's what I would say. I see you. I love you. God loves you. You are welcome here. Let's get to know one another. Let's walk this journey together. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I think your your academic writing and your pastoral ministry seems to affirm that. We're th- I'm thankful for the what you're doing at Asbury University and the way that this research that you have is impacting the world and encouraging people like me, people who are in ministry, trying to be better, trying to enter into a relationship with people so that we can, we, we have a saying like that kind of forms our identity as a church. We say we exist because we believe every person can be the person God has created him or her to be. And um, like you're helping us on that journey. So thank you so much for your time, Janet. God bless you. Thank you for having me, Andy. You too. God bless you. Next week on the podcast, we have Dr. Adley Charles, Divisional Music Director for the Florida Division of the Salvation Army. If you'd like to learn more about the Salvation Army of Tampa, check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.